We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today's guest is Matthew Landis. He is an Air Force veteran and has an incredible story to tell. Uh, after his service, he fell heavy into addiction. Uh, and I'm not going to ruin any of the story for you because it's a fascinating story, uh, but it's a redemption story uh, about how he was able to claw himself back into life. And what he used uh, to do that was getting into the outdoors and hiking and not just any hikes. Uh, he did the Pacific Rim Trail uh, twice so far and has many more hikes planned uh, because it's something that uh, has helped him to regain his his life and his sense of self and his sense of purpose. Uh, I, like I said, this is a, an incredible story. Thank you so much for listening in on the Scuttlebutt podcast. Uh, always interested to hear from my audience. Uh, you can reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any comments, thoughts, or questions. If you've got ideas for upcoming scuttlebutts, uh, I'd be happy to dive into anything. Or if you're a veteran and you'd like to share your story, reach out to me. We can sit down, do a recording, and create a podcast out of it. Love to do that as well. Um, so enjoy the show, and uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything, and it helps us to continue to build this community that we are so passionate about. Thank you again. Enjoy the show. Joining me today for the Scuttlebutt is Matthew Landis. Matthew, you are an Air Force veteran, and you have quite a story to share. You were a part of the VBC's Veterans History Project. Uh, people can watch that interview separate of the Scuttlebutt podcast, but in producing that uh, interview, I noticed that there was a lot more that we could dive into, and I thought maybe we'd start maybe at ground zero here and kind of get a background from you of, of your history, but there's a lot to get into here that I'm sure will be very interesting for our audience. Matt, welcome to the podcast. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, man. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yes, Matthew Landis, uh, United States Air Force Gulf War veteran. So I went in and enlisted in the Air Force in 1989. Mm -hmm. um, and I did my four-year term, got out in 93, and actually re-enlisted back in 2006. Uh, when I re-enlisted, I went to into the reserves. But I was active duty for my four-year term in uh, 1989, right during the time when the first Gulf War was, uh, we were bombing Baghdad, I believe, when I was in uh, basic training. So it was quite the, quite the intro to the, <laughs> to the military world. But it was an honor to serve. It's still I still look back on it as one of the you know the, I can look at my life and say what are the things I'm proud of, and serving my country was absolutely by far, uh, looking back one of the greatest accomplishments of my life. So it's it's been an honor and to share about it, um, you know, to for, with with those who have served and those who are even thinking of serving, and uh, maybe those who are uh, or struggling. I feel like. Um, I've been given a story to share and not to be buried. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's an honor to be able to share with you today. Awesome. And you were in the reserves from 06 till? 06 to 09. 06 to 09. Let's go back to 89, though. Why did you decide to yeah. enlist? So I, at the time, I was a college basketball player. I was um, uh, playing for Springfield College in Massachusetts. I had a full scholarship and I got injured and I went, I went down to spring break and Panama Beach, Florida, right near the Eglin Air Force Base. And next door to where we were staying, there was a guy who had, it seemed to me like everything. This was the guy who had the car. He had the apartment. He had this sharp, sharp uniform. He always had like just a good looking girl. <laughs> you know, I was like, and we had this conversation one day and he was like, why don't you join the Air Force, man? You can actually play basketball, you know, for the Air Force on a base team and travel with them. And I thought, no way, 
you know, it's not, not true. So I walked to a recruiter and I, I, I must have been just like exactly what he was looking for. Cause he was like, Oh yeah, sure. You can play basketball for the air force. <laughs> and, uh, like I said, when I was in is when they restarted the bombing in Baghdad. <clears throat> so I went in with the hopes of, of aspiring to become like this, uh, <clears throat> guy that I had met down there that, uh, you know, he had all these things in life. And as at the time I was just 18 years old, I thought, yeah, man, I would love that life, you know? So the recruiter said, yeah, sure enough, you can play basketball for the Air Force. So I enlisted. And during my during my enlistment, during the, my basic training, I was categorized over into civil engineer. So it went from, you know, hopefully being able to play basketball to civil engineer without a choice. And um, I actually never picked up a basketball again. Wow. <laughs> so I was college basketball player decided the air force was a better a, a better uh a better path for me in my life <clears throat> at the time <clears throat> excuse me i was really suffering from a lot of mental health issues that um had that had been part of my past my childhood that um were really starting to come out in my life <clears throat> excuse me and as a, a young man that grew up without a father i was a i was I was really, really seeking, um, I was seeking guidance. I was seeking uh, mentorship. But I'll tell you, the Air Force had a way of making sure that I sure knew what uh, discipline was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I quickly learned yes or no, sir, and right, right from wrong, how to behave, uh, respect for authority, um, things I grew up in New York I, I, I did not have. So it took me and it kind of molded me into someone who was capable of learning from others and really opening up my mind to the possibility of that discipline is exactly what I needed in my life at the time. So, um, yeah, the Air Force was a great decision. Um, and, uh, yeah, I look back on it with nothing but pride. So you didn't come from a military family. This was really just you kind of saw like a, a path forward for like, Oh, like that seems like a pretty cool lifestyle and, and went for it. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it's funny because my everyone, every male in my family that I traced back to my great grandfather had served. Oh. So my, my father uh, passed when I was, my, my, my dad actually overdosed and died when I was 19 years old, hmm. but he was in the Navy beforehand he was the united states navy he was on a submarine one of the first nuclear submarines uh my only uncle was a re retired full bird colonel in the air force mm -hmm. and my grandfather was in the navy and his nine brothers were all in the military in some way shape or form so military in my family and i grew up right next to right by touching the west point military academy okay so army was um i actually had army West Point had come to my house to recruit me to play basketball. And um, I had gone to the West Point prep school and I was thinking of going that way. And my mom, who had worked at Army, she was a director of football operations for for West Point. Mm -hmm. um, she was like, I don't mind if you go if you go in the military, just not Army. Just if you're going to go, just go. If you're going to do, do like your uncle and go Air Force. So I kind of followed in the footsteps of my uncle and uh, my dad, my grandfather. So I knew when I was making the decision it was a good decision. It was mm -hmm. specific. It was something that I did not quote unquote want to do, but I knew in my heart I needed it. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> which is kind of rare for someone that's 18. I was very, very lucky to make that decision. Changes the calculus a little bit for my sort of thought process there, because I, I kind of figured that, you know, you had found the military, but military yeah. wasn't something foreign to you as you grew up. No. Yeah. It was actually, I could hear at West Point, you could hear the cadets up there cheering how many days it was to the Army-Navy game, all the, what's for dinner on the menu. You could hear these chants and stuff. And I always thought, man, no way. But here I am, 18 years old, signing up for the Air Force in the middle of a war. <laughs> so were you deployed after after basic? You know, I was not. I was fortunate. I, I wound up stateside my entire term. I went from Eglin, uh, Texas to Colorado to Eglin Air Force Base. Um back to uh texas i'm sorry back to uh, colorado mm -hmm. so i was stationed at cheyenne the mountain they call it the cheyenne uh it was my first assignment 
and Lowry Air Force Base was in Denver, Colorado at the time. And I remember I went to re-enlist after my four-year term. And I believe it was Clinton was president at the time. They had just passed a big thing through Congress that they were downgrading the military. So they closed Lowry Air Force Base. I went in to re-enlist and I sat next to the guy, the sergeant, and he said to me, we'd love to have you come back. You're a great airman. You've got good conduct medals. You're never in trouble. So we'd love to have you. But if you want to stay, you have to go back to tech school because civil engineering is being outsourced to the civilian world. So we need you to be like maybe a nurse or something. And my first daughter had been just born and I had a long discussion with my wife and made the decision at the time to become a civilian and try to make, maneuver, make a life from what I had learned in the Air Force as a civil engineer and take that into my civilian life, which I did. How was that first transition out? Um, extremely challenging for me. Um, the discipline and stuff that I had mentioned before that I didn't have, I realized now at 21, 20, 18, 19, 20, at 22, that once that military discipline was gone, the childhood New Yorker discipline started to come back into my life. I started to get in trouble. Um, and I, and, and it was not too long after that, that I, I began, uh, a, what turned out to be a 25 year battle with addiction. So I, I uh, had gone from, you know, casually drinking and whatnot in the military. I got in and it was like the thing to do was to drink. And uh, I kind of carried that one thing, the drinking uh, over with me from my military career into my civilian life. Um, and it became the, the foundation of uh, my daily existence was, was alcoholism. And I could tell you more about that if you'd like, whenever, but like, um, it was a very difficult time for me to go from having discipline in the military life to as a civilian, you can like call in sick <laughs> and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, I used all my sick days and all these things and stuff in the military. You didn't have an option. There's no such thing. And, uh, I, there was no, um, guidance in 19 or in 1993. I don't, don't remember any like class that you went to. Like, that was like, like tap, you're like going to yeah, it's just like sign here. And then when you walk out the door, it's like you turn in your ID and you're done. Just mm -hmm. done. And I I could not without any mentorship in my life, I just couldn't I couldn't put it all together. And I really wound up struggling uh, with my mental health. So that was a good seven year chunk before you re-enlisted into the reserves. Uh, yes. Were you were you struggling with finding a job, uh, addiction, different things throughout those seven years? Completely. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was so believe I, I had such a belief in my mind that that discipline that I had lost, um, I wanted it back mm -hmm. and I wanted that. I was, I was still holding on to that. Yes, sir. No, sir. And wanting that mentorship in my life. Mm -hmm. And yet I was here. I was a civilian running around now living up in the mountains of Colorado and um yeah man i just i felt like uh i felt like i i wanted to give it another try and i did the the big thing that happened though in those 7 years was 911 so between 93 you know 2001 um, absolutely so take us through sort of 911 because what i find always interesting is the the guys who like my age who you know, we're getting out of high school, 9-11 happens, they enlist, you know, they're off to Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, there's this That's sort right. of big swell of, uh, yeah. you know, national pride, support, war on terror. Um, and 01, where were you? And and what, where were you, uh, what happened during 9-11? I was in Colorado. And I remember my, my whole family is back in New York, right by and my brother and my sister worked in New York City. And so 9-11, when that happened, um, I, I flew home 35 days later. So I, I just had to go and I had to be there and I had to see what happened to where I grew up. And, um, I lived 30 minutes from there and like, um, I video back when videos, video cameras were not on your phone. They were like a big handheld thing. I videoed just what I had saw and the impact it had on me was I knew that I knew that I wanted to reenlist 
I was struggling so much with addiction and drinking that I just, I wasn't ready to go back in yet. There's no way I would have been able to show up. And I thought by the time 2006 came around that I was starting to get a, uh, I had just started going to meetings like AA and NA and things like that to try to get a handle on it, but I couldn't. And um, I wound up, you know, I think that's why I, looking back, I didn't go active duty. I went back in as, as reserve because I, in my heart, I knew I wasn't healthy. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, 9-11 was a, a major impact on why I reenlisted. Huge impact. Did 9-11 um, cause you to dive further into addiction? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I'd say um, by then I was so heavy into my usage that mm -hmm. um, it just became exactly what I needed to do every day to survive. Yeah. So I, the depression and things from my childhood that I mentioned previously, those things start to manifest. Yeah. And I believe now and looking back and being healthy now for over two years and five months, I believe now that things that happen to us, at least this is my experience, things that happen to us at any point in life that are traumatic, they have a way of storing themselves and manifesting themselves in other, way, other ways of our life. And it could be in the sense of physical things, such as unexplained uh, sickness, or you uh, can have, I've had tumors, I've had my right hip, uh, all of a sudden, just, it's it's where my body stores trauma. Hmm. And um, discovering that uh, was a huge, a huge turn on my getting healthy, I was I realized I was using because I was feeling unhealthy. And I just was in this cycle of circular well, I wake up, I don't feel good, so I'll use, boom, I use, oh, I don't feel good, so we'll just keep repeating the same pattern over and over and over. Yeah. You know, and so, no, um, yeah, addiction is a, is a vicious battle, it's, and it was a vicious battle for me. I want to get to uh, sort of how you were able to overcome that, but I, I'm glad that we're laying the, the groundwork for how severe it was, um, because your recovery and your uh, ability to come out of that is is really at the heart of what I heard in the in the Veterans History Project interview that made me want to dive further. Um, yes, sir. So, uh, 06, how do you, what I don't understand, how how could you go from, like, have addiction, but still be able to get into the reserves? How, uh, yeah. Were you able to get yourself healthy enough, or was it something that was able yeah. to be hidden? I was very good at hiding it. Mm. I was addicted to opiates. Mm -hmm. And the more I could get my hands on, <clears throat> the better I'd be at things like physical therapy. I could build a house in a day yeah. <laughs> on drugs. I'm serious. It was just over my, I remember like my, my scores for physical fitness were extremely high. Like I had no problem staying physically in shape um, with the, with the minimum requirements of the air force, you know, uh, and things like that. It was the mental that like I wasn't like I screwed up a few times. I didn't show up on weekends um, and things like that were going on. I finally had a conversation with my tech with my sergeant. I told him, look, this is what's going on. I just got accepted into a place across the river in New York for me called uh, the Montrose VA, Montrose, New York VA system. They have a 30 day program that I'm going to go see if 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 I'm sick, if I'm I had no idea. And um I did a 30 day. And after that 30 days, I thought I, I thought I had it. Like I was already on step seven in my 12 step program. I was like rushing through it, but I felt I had the mindset and uh, the clarity that I could reenlist and I could make it. And I did, mm -hmm. but it, again, it reared its ugly head as time rolled by and, you know, Landis isn't showing up for this. He's not showing up for that. He's not looking right. Like something's wrong. So I had to go, I, I had to come to them and say, look, this is what's going on. I can't, I need help. So I wound up going to get some help. That was the beginning of getting help, which lasted for decades. How difficult was it to admit that there was a problem and then say, I need to find help? So for me, first of all, it's a, a great question. Um, for me, hiding things from myself became the most incredible discovery at how deceptive I was to self hmm. of fooling myself that 
there was always the word tomorrow and the procrastination of tomorrow that I could I could take or do. And weeks go by. They turn into months and then turn into years. And, and next thing you know, um, you know, admitting to myself that I had a problem was far more challenging than, than to admitting to other people. Like I remember sitting in the Atlanta, Georgia. I had been homeless for a while and I got, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I got picked up off the streets there. I got in some trouble. I wound up at the VA and I remember sitting across, across from the chief director of the entire program. I had been there for a month and they were considering kicking me out again for the second time in a month. She sat me down. She said something I'll never forget. She said, Matthew, I think that you are a lot more sick than you know. Hmm. You don't know how sick you are. And that's what's stopping you. And I, I was, I was taken aback by that. I was like, how dare you? Like, I know I'm sick. I know, but I didn't know how sick I was. Hmm. And that comes from what you asked about admitting to yourself and saying, look, dude, here's the, here are the cards. This is what you got. Your dad died from it. Your brother overdosed from it. And the devil isn't going to stop until he's got you. And it was from that conversation. And that was in 2015. From that conversation was born the idea that I didn't want my daughters to get a phone call like I did and saying, your dad lost his battle with addiction and he's gone. Like, I just couldn't do that to my kids. So, excuse me. So I um, I I just started to fight harder mm-hmm. and harder and harder because I love my kids. And um, I just, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody to get that type of phone call. And um, once I realized that I was that sick and that my daughters were in a position that they could get that phone call. I began to take things a lot more serious and I began to ask for help. Um, I did wind up again, getting kicked out of that VA though in, in Atlanta. And I remember them helping me look for another place to go. And they were like, we don't know where you're going to go, but you can't stay here anymore. You're breaking all the rules. You're not showing up on time. You're leaving on weekends. You're not coming back enough and they apply to three different facilities around the country somewhere in new york somewhere in california somewhere in in wyoming well somewhere in wyoming turned out to be a gift they accepted me into a program out there that was an eight-week program a longer term program and the beauty of it was it was it was nestled right at the base of the bighorn mountains so my assignment in the Air Force in Colorado, while I was stationed in Colorado, I didn't mention, but I got introduced to a, along with the negative, the positive was I got introduced to an entire new world in the outdoors in the mountains of Colorado. The Rocky Mountains mm-hmm. absolutely became my weekend. I wound up living there for seven years. So we moved up to Breckenridge. Well, I had lost all that for a decade. I had lost all. I was sleeping on this, literally sleeping on the streets of Georgia. I still have the sign in my box that says veteran needs help, please. Like I got kicked out of that one. And when they sent me to, uh, excuse me, I will say, brother, just so you know, between me and you, I had a TBI and a traumatic brain injury in, in 2015. So if I bounce around a little bit in my head with dates and stuff and I get messed up, I apologize, but right. I'll get, back, I'll get back on track. Um, but the VA that accepted me out in Wyoming, nestled at the base of those of the foothills, man, I fell in love with the outdoors again. I started going, I'd get a weekend pass on Thursday and I'd come back on Sunday. I had a backpack and all I did was no drugs, no drinking. I'd go right up to the mountains. Mm-hmm. I'd backpack, I'd explore. I went to Cloud Peak Wilderness. I started keeping a log of all the places I went. And that <clears throat> that turned into... I went through that program over and over. Like I, after the third time, um, it became apparent that the outdoors were going to be something in my future. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hope that kind of lays the ground of something. It does. It up. brings up one question. Um, 
is how did you become homeless? And, and yeah, when, you know, when did that happen? Well, like my, a lot of my stories, brother, and it starts out like this. So there was this girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. Yeah. There was a girl and I chased her, man. I was in love. And um, I went from having a car and being in therapy uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. I met someone. We kind of bounced around the country together. She wound up going back to, to Georgia. I went out to Georgia. I had a little bit of cash. I'm talking a couple hundred bucks, but I had my car so I could sleep in the car. And um, on my birthday, July 22nd in 2015, in that car, I was with a stranger, a complete stranger I had just met that morning, asking for a cigarette dead serious true story on my daughter's life every single word this is absolutely true mm -hmm. i sat next to her and watched her stick a needle in her arm and she asked me if i wanted to get high absolutely absolutely i wanted to get high it was my birthday for the first time i stuck a needle in my arm and whoever that girl was saved my life because she called 911 i overdosed I woke up in that Burger King parking lot. I was on the concrete and there was a person over me with a bag on my mouth and they were punching the back. I could hear them talking. My ears were ringing and they were pumping air into my brain after hitting me with a second dose of Narcan. They were trying to get me back to life. So I wake up and they rushed me to the ER and on the way there's a nurse, an EMT nurse that stays in the car with me. She gets off work. She stays with me at the, at the hospital. This woman looks exactly like my mom. And she hmm. sat there and she goes, I, 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 and she was an angel, man. I'm telling you, this is what she said. She goes, Matthew, I stayed to let you know, because no one else is going to tell you hmm. that you were dead in that parking lot. When we came, you were gone. We broke the window in your car and we pulled you out and we pumped air into your brain because you, she kept saying it, you were dead. Like, I don't think she could, she wasn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> and to me, it was kind of a funny, I was, I remember giggling because I was still high and, but the seriousness in her face was, and she said to me, I don't know if you're, if you're open to it and I don't know if you want this, but there's a place here in Georgia that you can get help. And it's called the, and, and it's the VA medical facility here in Georgia. And that was how I got into that. Oh, they repossessed my car. Okay. So when I was in Burger King, they took my car, they impounded it, which I had no money to get out. I was already behind on payments. So Chevy came and picked that up. So I went from in the car in the Burger King parking lot to walking out of the EM the emergency room with a, a bunch of papers in my hand. A, 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 my wallet was in the car. My, I had a identification wristband from the hospital and that's it, dude. So I wound up going and sleeping underneath the bridge bridges in Fulton County. Um, I got arrested for stealing a beer at one o'clock in the morning on the 4th of July. Um, dangerous, dangerous. Was it dangerous, dangerous. under the bridge where there are other homeless? Dangerous. Like, yeah, dangerous brother. Like. I was not in a healthy area. I was in a very dangerous, very, very bad area. And being from New York, like I knew where I was at, it was in danger. But I was confident. Like I was like, no one, no one's gonna mess with me. Like I, I felt, I felt okay with that. And um, unfortunately, though, I just kept diving more into drugs. And uh, you know, and didn't when OD I, again. Just getting yeah, the, the kick. Yes, sir. I didn't. I never. I never stuck a needle in my arm again after that day. And, um, I never messed with her. I never messed with heroin again after that day. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's, and, the, and it was that lady at that VA was the one who said to me, I don't think you know how sick you are. She was going on and on. And, and it was there that I realized like, I need longer term care. This 30 day thing is not working. They're kicking you out in a week. You're in serious trouble. You just died. You need help. Like that's mm -hmm. when it really hit me. Like, man, I, am sick where were your your kids your i'm guessing ex-wife at this point where where were they yeah so i became estranged from them um 
when I left Colorado, um, in, uh, two I left Colorado in 2003 mm -hmm. and wound up again, another girl in the picture making bad choices. And I became estranged from my daughters. And, uh, the most, I will tell you this, the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life is, is trying to rebuild the relationships with them. Mm -hmm. But like, I am so blessed to be associated with good people because I just got back last week. I spent 10 days in Colorado with my daughter, Courtney, and my grandsons, Reggie and Renton. And today is actually his birthday. He's six years old, Renton. And so happy birthday, Renton. And I got to spend a week in Breckenridge with no alcohol, no drugs, riding the summer thing, gondola up to the top of the mountains, watching them play. I got to live, you know, mm -hmm. after decades of, of self-abuse. And, um, you know, part of me of sharing this is I know for sure that there's other veterans mm -hmm. that are exactly where I was and they're there right now. Or they know like, someone who is. Yeah. And I want to be that resource where like, and I have been very lucky to be the, that resource for some veterans that are aspiring to do something. And my, my challenge brother was always not the VA. It wasn't their way of doing things. It was, I, I could go to a program. I could ACE the program. I was given all the tools, but there was a gap for me in between treatment and civilian life, just like in the military, mm -hmm. there was, there was a gap. Like I could not function without discipline. Like I needed mm -hmm. some set of rules or something <clears throat> to, to work under, <clears throat> you know, so trying to live by that is, is I, I should rephrase that living by that with, with the self-discipline that I, that I've learned enables me to be able to do things like go to Colorado, see my kids and all of that. And, and, and to not need alcohol and drugs to do that is amazing. So yeah, to, my hope is to be able to be a liaison for these guys that can call me and I don't care you, you two o'clock in the morning, whatever, wherever you are. I, I know enough people going through this now that wherever a veteran is in the country, wherever they're at, whatever they're going through, I can help them find resources to get them help, mm -hmm. to get them off the street and to get them into to treatment. So you were able to get out into the outdoors. This sort of leads us into yeah, these, the walks. These walks yeah. are incredible that you've done multiple yes, times. Sir. And we're not talking like, I'm going to go take a walk around the park. This is miles, <laughs> miles, miles. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So when I went to Wyoming <clears throat> and was there at the base of the Bighorns, I remember I was going away every weekend coming back. Mm -hmm. Well, one night I went outside. And there was a peer support and peer supports at the VA at every VA facility I've ever been at, man, the peer support guys and gals have always been like the coolest. You like, you have to have a year sober. They have to have been through some stuff in their life. And they're just, I could relate to them. And this peer support was sitting outside with me. It was 2 AM. He's sitting outside with me. And he said to me, dude, you're always going away in the, on the weekend. Like you go, you leave Thursday, you come back Sunday, all filthy. You don't do nothing for three days. And then you go out and do it again. Like you do that over and over and you're happy. Like, what do you do? <clears throat> I told him I buy, I backpack and I take my phone and I use it as a, as a camera. I take pictures. I started showing him pictures. He was like, holy shit, like sugar. <laughs> this is really good. Like you're talented. You ought to, what about doing a long distance hike? Like something that you could do for several months. And he told me about the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm-hmm. Going from Canada to Mexico, 2,653 miles. <clears throat> he told me that story in May of 2000, sorry, <clears throat> 2021. And I'm sorry, 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I am sorry. I'm, there goes my brain doing its thing. It was 2018 and 2019 I hiked it. So okay. in 2018, in, in May of 2018, he told me about the Pacific Crest Trail. By July 8th, I was southbound on the trail. Hmm. I took six, seven weeks to plan it, flew out to Seattle, took a bus from Seattle up to wash to the top of Canada. And I met, began to meet other southbound hikers on the Pacific Crest Trail, which would turn out to be 
the journey that saved that literally helped save my my life and is now still the direction on which my photography is based on um mm -hmm. and if and if any veteran has ever considered doing something like a long distance hike I, <clears throat> for me personally i can say without it i don't know if i'd be alive mm -hmm. i was able to what it what it did for me is it helped me gain a sense of community again a sense huge. of love again yes mm -hmm. huge community love people helping other people um now, now i'm from i'm a new yorker who was homeless in fulton county georgia in trouble in and out of jail like i was the dude i'm very very not expecting this type of uh love and i, I don't even know it's out there in the world i don't know what a hiker box is I don't know what a trail angel is. I don't know any of these things, but those things turned out to be things that are built by people mm -hmm. and people and kindness are two are the things in my life. The kindness of other people that do kind things and acts of love for no apparent reason. When I began to see that all along this trail that lasted me five and a half months of hiking, mm -hmm. I began to see and build little micro relationships that I still have today with people that welcome me into their home, let would pick you up on, on a, in the rain, let you stay with them for a couple of days, all because you're on a mission of, of hiking. Yeah. Well, I get on this hike brother. And I'm telling you all these other veterans back at the VA, I just left, started following me. Mm -hmm. And they were all saying the same thing, dude, I want to do that. I want to do that. I, so in 2019, Three other veterans from that same facility went out and they also hiked. They went northbound, hmm. but they completed the Pacific Crest Trail from the from that same VA facility I was at. So a long distance hike for me allowed me to have the time in my mind. Remember before I was saying that the hard part for me is the gap between treatment and civilian life. The gap for me, I filled with the Pacific Crest Trail. I took the time over five months to figure out what I want to do, where I want to live, mm -hmm. and answer these questions with some sobriety and yep. be able to have some clarity in my mind so I could see and I could think the way, you know, um, my calling, my, my foundation is built on God and my faith in God. So I, with, with so much Matthew in the brain, though, there's no room for God. <laughs> There's no time for him up there. So a long distance hike took that time and that space in my mind and opened it up and allowed me to receive the love and kindness out there of other people, which allowed me eventually to start loving myself. Do you think that all happened on that first hike? Um, no, no. And that's a great question because after the first hike, and this is a critical, I will say the biggest thing about hiking the PCT, number one, the hardest part about hiking the PCT is the decision to do it. And number two, the most important thing you can do for the PCT is to decide ahead of time what you're going to do after. Hmm. Because when I finished the hiking the first time, my life collapsed. I remember coming back to this. Uh, I, I found a, a place to stay out in California at a at a farm. And I remember just everything being gone the community that I, I built all these people were now just like fake people on my phone i physically had no place to go i physically had no place to get mail i i had people now from that were spread out that some were still hiking somewhere i just had, felt like i had nothing i dove back into addiction so fast it wasn't even funny and I la that lasted for months. And this is in between 2018, and 2019. And in 2019, I had gotten a call from someone that I hiked, I hiked Washington, the entire state with the first time. And I had been calling her and calling her and calling her. I'm like, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And one day she was like, Matthew, you call once a week and you keep saying the same things. You're in trouble. You don't know what to do. And she said very powerfully. The only time I've seen you know what to do is when you were hiking. Why don't you get on a plane, come back up to Washington, and hike again? Just start southbound and just do Washington. Mm -hmm. And as soon as my feet hit the trail, it was June, I'm oh, sorry, July 13th. 
southbound. As soon as my feet hit the trail, I knew I wasn't going to stop. Mm-hmm. And um, hiking it second time, the second time, completely different. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. Mostly you can see it in my photography. It went from pictures of mountains to pictures of people looking at mountains. I was inspired to see how the outdoors was affecting not just me anymore, but other people. Mm-hmm. So I I aspired to ask around other veterans, or other hikers, hey, are you a veteran? Are you a veteran? And one out of every 10 would be like, yeah, I served. And I'd strike up conversations. I'd break up my phone and I'd start interviewing them and, and dreaming one day, I'm going to build a documentary about this. Mm-hmm. And um, so that became my passion. And it took me a month longer to hike it the second time because I kept, kept stopping so much. <laughs> I'd stay in this town and that town and I meet so many nice people and people from the first time I, I hiked with. And it became community and it became, and I realized that I it was my responsibility to keep that community going mm-hmm. and to keep staying involved with other veteran organizations that do things for veterans. And I'd like to mention some of those that I've been involved with later if you want, but yeah. there's some groups out there that will take veterans hiking, pay for your airfare, put you on a plane, fly you to Denver, pick you up, take you hiking for five days and put you back in the plane that you won't spend a penny. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's organizations out there like that. So I always I like to put that out there. The, um, no barriers is the name of the one I'm thinking of. No, no barriers. barriers. Yeah. It was founded by the, the first blind guy who hiked Mount Everest. Huh. And I, I apologize for getting his name, but, uh, he also kayaked the guy, the grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. The guy's amazing, but he starts off the no barriers thing with something I'd like to share. And it has to do with hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or of any major accomplishment that you hit. And especially if you're an addict or recovering addict. I I say now, just so you know, like I don't say that I, I had a battle with addiction, but it's one. I won that. I don't believe going into places and saying, I, I'm Matthew and I am anything but successful. I don't believe in saying that. So I don't. Each their own. But the No Barriers uh, program um, – Oh, there goes my brain again, dude. I'm so sorry. It's okay. What were we, what was I saying? You're talking about no barriers. The guy that did uh blind, who did the, yes. yeah. And he yes, starts sir. off the website with a quote. Yes. He starts off saying that what was said to him when he, he when he hit Mount Everest, the, his guide said to him, don't let Mount Everest be the greatest thing you ever do. So I had to turn, I had to take that. And put that towards the Pacific Crest Trail. Don't let that trail, hiking it twice, be the the greatest accomplishment of your life. Mm -hmm. Use that. And let's move on to the next thing. And let's go to the next thing. And let's go to the next thing. So I've been able to, to, with the help of a lot of other people, begin to build that documentary film that I long to to build. Mm -hmm. My goal is to have a documentary film that can be shown in every VA facility in the country so that when these veterans that are struggling are sitting there watching it, they see what is possible in the mountains. Mm-hmm. They see the healing that's out there. I don't throw faith at people. I don't throw Bibles at people. I don't throw the, my faith is my own walk. And Christ is part of my story. And it is part of my documentary. And it doesn't have to be part of everybody's. Mm-hmm. You know, we all make our own choices. The point of doing the documentary is to give hope hope so that when you're sitting there and you go i don't know what i'm going to do when i graduate this program the va wants to find me a job i don't want to work again right now i'm waiting on my disability i've got all this shit going on i'm in a divorce blah 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 blah. hike a trail mm-hmm. get a backpack there's always a trail open sometime in some in some place and i if there's veterans out there that are struggling with getting gear backpacks sleeping bags stuff like that make sure you contact me because i do have resources for veterans that i can get you gear what is the best way for someone to reach you? Um, you know, I'm cool with giving out my cell phone number. I'm that type of dude. But if you want, my email address sure. is my last name is my last name Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S. So it's Landis and the word mailbox. Landis mailbox mm-hmm. at Gmail. Super and then <clears throat> yeah, pretty, that's easy. And then I do like um Matthew.landis is my Instagram. 
and Matthew J. Landis 44 is my Facebook. I try to well, throw my photos on there. Um, Landis Adventure Photography is my website for all my photography, landisadventurephotography.com. And even if there's, there's veterans out there that are considering taking up um, photography, like right now the VA is paying for me to go to school uh, part-time at the Southern New Hampshire University. They're paying for the computer. They're paying for me to go to school. They give you a little bit of housing allowance, the, the vocational rehab program. If you're serious about getting in, into a different career or something like that, that's a fantastic opportunity out there for veterans that you can you can use with your hike. Like I just got done doing Katahdin last weekend and I was able to do some of the schoolwork on my phone. Like, you know, it's pretty yeah. simple. So there's you know, a find, lot of opportunities out there. I find it interesting because a couple of reasons. Number one, my brother uh, who lives out in Wyoming and I visited him out in Jackson Hole and it's just awesome. one of the most beautiful places. I'll actually be out there. This this podcast will air a little late, but I'll be out in Colorado visiting him in Boulder um, next week. He's a big climber, big outdoors guy, despite growing awesome. up at Virginia Beach and loving, you know, he's like, yeah, the beach is great. I want to see mountains. Yeah. Um, so I follow him. He did a bit of the Appalachian Trail years ago. Um, didn't complete it, but walked up from Georgia up into like North Carolina. Um, sure. You know, big hiker. So talking with him about sort of what a hike is like it's yeah. i wouldn't know anything there is to know about i go out i'll do a hike you know with my wife my kids we'll go out and you know do the woods for a little bit but walking every day like you start thinking you don't realize like oh you're doing probably 18 20 miles a day like you are yes. footing it and it's tough walking yes. it's not just flat road easy like no. you you know you're you're subject to the elements you know, subject to injury because your knees, your hips, your muscles, like everything, like all of that has to be tuned and ready to go for that level of commitment of walking. So being able to do Pacific Coast Trail for twice, even once, yeah, is a huge undertaking, not just mentally, because mentally, this is what my brother said. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this is he said, I didn't enjoy doing the Appalachian because I like hiking to a goal. I want to hike to a climbing spot, climb, and then hike out. Like he loved doing that. He's like, but just the mental stress of like, I'm hiking today. I'm going to do 18, 20, 20 miles. And that's kind of what my day is. He's like, I, that I couldn't really get my head around. And he was younger at that time. Um, yeah. But how did you deal with that? Because I mean, you are, you're in your head. You might not have anybody to talk to that whole day. You might be hiking oh. for three days and not see anybody. It might Absolutely. be good to have that sort of like solitude and really sort of like, you know, get that, that alone time. But eventually yeah. for me, I'd be like, I'm kind of bored with talking to myself. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right in the money, man. Uh, a good example of that would be like the Sierra Nevadas. So the Sierra Nevadas, um, you can go a trek out there for eight days, I think was our longest. Um, my second time doing it, I was southbound through southbound through them and I got a late start. So I was up near Yosemite in the beginning of November. Ooh. So people were telling me I was crazy. You can't do that. Search and rescue is going to be looking for you, blah, blah, blah. But I had already done it once. Um, I had a beacon. I had an SOS beacon. Um, I had the gear. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> but I was alone. And I did go out there and I videoed and took photos that I still to this day for five for five out of the eight days that I went, I wound up needing a resupply after five. Five days, not another footprint, not another human being in sight from the top of, you're talking 13,000 footers and not one human being. That was the, the by far the greatest part of both hikes for me because I had no one. Mm -hmm. And I was like looking at coyote foot tra tra tracks and deer tracks and just like, and I had time, like I was saying before, I allowed time. And what a beautiful place to be able to do that, to wake up in the morning, like you said, to look at my 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 goal for the day. Okay, I want to camp there tonight because it's listed as, you know, on the, there's an app that tells you years ago, the, you know, word of mouth and a map. Now you get, you have an app that will tell you what your next camp, where your water is, all this stuff. Anyway, so you set your goal, it's 18 miles, right? And it allows you just like kind of plan your, for me, it allowed me to plan my day. Mm -hmm. You know, I would break it down like a football game. I got 20 miles. Cool. I'll do four, 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 and four, or sorry, five, 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 do five miles, stop, take a break, five more miles. And it's halftime. Take my shoes off, 
lay down for an hour in the sun, just relax, force yourself to relax, do five more miles and take one more break. And you only have five to go mm -hmm. and then five more miles. And then you feel like when you arrive at that camp, like I would feel like I accomplished something major mm -hmm. for the day. 18 miles through the Sierras is absolutely brutal, but it's worth it. Like this, the, the, the scenery, the views, the sounds, the smell, it, it amazes me that there's a place in America like that. So many people haven't seen. It's oh, just, yeah, dumb, you know, absolutely. You fly into Jackson and you're blown away by the Tetons going oh, to yeah. Yellowstone and just seeing the, the wind views, river the vistas. The, yeah. Um, this leads me so, to an interesting question because your, your mind and your body were sort of used to uh, this addiction, the, what you needed, the fix that you needed yeah. from something other than, yeah. Then you, you head out into the wilderness and you start to expose your senses, all of them to yep. this, to uh, what we just said, the, the, you know, mountains and air yes. and noise or no noise or, and how did your body shift with that? Was it? That's a great question, man, because I worried about that. I was like, how am I going to go from like drinking every day to not? <clears throat> and I will tell you, I don't know how this happened, but I suffered from no withdrawals, none, but I, I went from like every day and I, to, to zero. And I am telling you, I am positive now that it was, it's mental. It's the mind that's producing these chemicals, these things that are causing us to me to need, to want. I've had alcohol in my system for a year, every day. It's going to freak out. Like I'm telling myself, these things are going to happen. I will tell you, something comes from beating yourself to death on a trail <laughs> for doing it for from sunrise to sunset, that by the time the end of the day comes, you are so physically exhausted that you don't have the energy to cook ramen noodles, that you just don't have the energy to blow up your air mattress, mm -hmm. that when you finally get that done and your tent set up, you collapse. You're just spent, done. Wake up in the middle of the night, eat a Snickers bar, go back to sleep. Like- Something magical happened during those few days in the Sierras that I had the opportunity of to have zero and to feel what a zero feels like to have no alcohol, no nothing, and to be so alert hmm. and, and just sharp and remember things and remember conversations and people. It opened up a whole new way for my brain to think. So I personally did not have any physical I think my brain, my mind replaced what could have been a bad situation with the mountains. Like your brother was saying, I'd rather be like in the mountaintops. And I'm the same way. I love the Appalachian Trail. I live right next door to it. I just hiked Katahdin last weekend. I think it's beautiful here, but the Rocky Mountains are my are my home, my photography home. It's where I love to be. My 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 daughters still live in Breckenridge, so I'm blessed to be able to have to go out there and see. Hey, would you this is my my service dog? Come here. Say hi. Oops. What's your service dog's name? Oh, his name's his name's Kawhi. Kawhi. Like the island Kawhi. Yeah. Kawhi. Right. Yeah, he's um, a good boy. He's been him for two years. Yeah, going so how did you get connected with Kawhi? Um, when I was at I was in Sheridan, Wyoming. Do you know that's just north of Buffalo? Mm -hmm. So the the VA facility out there, when I was there, there was a program that came out that uh there was a local retired marine that was training service dogs uh he had done canine for the state patrol so he was really good at what he did and he was going to the local shelter to find to interview i guess dogs that could qualify to be a service dog and Kawhi and i met um i mean the day we met i came up stuck his nose in my belly and he was like what we do is we have you take him home for the weekend try him out see it's a little windy i'm just gonna go inside no problem um yeah, they were like, uh, you know, take him home for the weekend, try it out, see how he does and all this. And we have been inseparable ever since. <laughs> so so dude, you've been clean for how long? Two years, five months. That's awesome. That's yep. Two years, five awesome. months, man. Yeah. So uh, it's amazing. At, at times, do you feel that, that, that old need and how do you feel that? So <clears throat> that's a very, very good question. So what I've done is I've enrolled myself into different 
things, I, I don't know what to call them, that take my time that are geared towards recovery. And one of them I, that I use is called Celebrate Recovery. And um, Celebrate Recovery is kind of like a 12-step, uh, but it's, it's, based, it's biblical. It's based on the Bible. And uh, it was started by Rick Warren, who wrote Purpose Driven Life, and uh, is an amazing, absolutely amazing uh, organization. Mm -hmm. It's helped save thousands of people's lives, uh, Celebrate Recovery. So inside of Celebrate Recovery, <clears throat> there's a often a what's called a men's group. And the men's group will meet every Saturday uh, for an hour or so. And I've been meeting with, with them now for about four months. So every Saturday I go in, we sit down, the, the, there's six of us and we just talk, man. There's a guide of stuff that we go through about how we're handling life and how we get to the handle the problems that led us to our addictions and really peeling back layers of stuff and going back and realizing that all those things I had mentioned before, like traumas that happen to you when you're younger, how they come out and how they do manifest themselves. Mm -hmm. And ironically, like um, using things like that 12 step uh, meeting with the guys, uh, we had just, we had just briefly talked about acupuncture. Mm -hmm. So acupuncture, Tai Chi and uh, uh, meditation. Those three things for me are like a cocktail of sobriety. Mm -hmm. Meet with other people that are, living the way I want to live and have somebody I can call community. Yep. Community, having people that I can, um, having my calendar filled with things that I know that are challenging upcoming events, photography, uh, obligations. Um, and then like things like going to school again, making a decision to go back to college, having things that occupy my brain because there's a lot of room in there, man. <laughs> and my brain will, uh, from time to time, It'll drift towards what ifs and what ifs that, but I, I am, I am so blessed where I'm at in my recovery to have discovered that my ultimate way of recovery is helping other people recover mm -hmm. by, by doing that. There's something that happens in my brain that I feel like it's come full circle. Like those things that I was given, I literally call it turning a mess into a message, mm -hmm. taking that life that was just, that had fallen apart and going, look, it may, it may have taken this long, but I just spent a week with my daughter and grandsons. Like I, it's happening. I'm, I've had conversations with my ex-wife. There's been healing. There's been forgiveness. There's been, I love yous and there's been, it's okay. And we start again and we live and we move on. Mm -hmm. It's not staying stuck in the past anymore. It's filling your day with people, community filling my, my, my calendar with events that are going to challenge me and occupy my time. You know, um, I think one of the, one personally, one of the greatest challenges that veterans have is when they get hundred percent disability, what to do with their time. Mm -hmm. It was, it was for me anyway, I had to like be involved with something, you know? So yeah, man, that's a good. And then, and then in those calendar events when you're throwing in things like the outdoors and you're inviting other veterans to come and your photography is growing and things like that you, there's it, it, i i had the opposite feeling towards using now it's i would never why would i want to there's nothing there there's nothing but the past in that so i just choose not to that's excellent uh one thing that keeps ringing to me there are two things and they're kind of and that's in the same column is yeah. one you you had a lot of guardian angels that, yes that somehow at the right moment in your life especially when you when you od'd in the car especially. that found them way to found their way to you yes is one i'd like you to speak to these guardian angels but two it's twofold the, the second question i have is did this lead you to have a stronger faith or was that always a part of your life no um Fabulous question. And so in speaking to those angels, there's almost no words that I can say that line up the gratitude and the appreciation and the thanks. The message I get is it's, it's, it's almost a whisper of, I need you to do it now. 
Like I did, someone did it for you, Matthew. Now you got it. You need to do it for others. Not just one, everyone. Like don't limit it to this one because he's suffering. Everyone's, everyone is suffering with something. Everyone's struggling with something. So um, what, what that did for me is I grew up, I, I grew up Catholic and I became atheist the moment I joined the Air Force for a long time. I never, I never set foot in a church. I wanted nothing to do with sit, kneel, stand. I did not like traditional, you know, altar boy, this, that, and being quiet in church. I was down in Georgia, actually. I was home when I was in Atlanta, and I walked into a, my first Southern Baptist church, and I I saw what worship was like. These people were happy, and they were singing. They were I, I had never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I became more into the non-traditional, uh, non-denominational just following God, just following Jesus, just love each other and keeping it simple and keeping man's <laughs> ideas out of the way and putting Jesus's ideas in the, in the, in the way, making those the foundation. And those, those people that showed up in my life were no doubt sent, you know, because I was at a critical time and possibly, you know, even you're talking, uh, one decision the wrong way, <laughs> you know, even that, even that girl that I, that was in the car with me that, uh, that called 911, she could have just w walked away, you know, and just ran away and just never saw me again. And I, my daughters would have got that phone call. Mm -hmm. So those, when those people appear in my life, I consider it a gift from God and something to be shared with other people for sure. If that makes sense. Complete sense. And for our listeners that uh, all of the links that that Matthew's described here are going to be here in the chat as well, from the book to your websites, uh, to, to, um, celebrate recovery. I want to have all of those links down here, okay. um, for people to, to just scroll down and click on and whether they click on and look at a photo or they, you know, sure. decide to connect with you and say, Hey, I, I know somebody who could use some help or I could use some help, you know? Yes. Uh, you know, I think it's amazing that you are opening up your door like that to, to, to anybody, to strangers and saying, anybody, you know, I can, I, I can help like I was helped. Um, yes. Matthew, I, I just want to thank you for this time, for your sharing your, your sure. truth really. Um, and, and sharing this story because these are the things, these are the points in the, in the podcast. It's always nice to have organizations on, um, hear different veteran stories, hear guys that are out there like, Hey, I transitioned out and I was having a tough time, but now I'm a public speaker and I found a new mission and yes. all that. Um, but it, it's sometimes very rare when we, when we have someone on that has such a, a, a story like yours that just says, I, I was at the, the, the probably I fell off the rope. I wasn't at the bottom. I fell off the rope yes. and somehow it extended or somehow I was able to catch back onto it and, yeah. and get pulled out. And, and just where you're at now and just trying to help everybody. It's very, very inspirational. Um, thank you. Yeah, I get chills on, on on recordings like this. So I just want to thank you so much for, for talking with me today. And, and you know, yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. My pleasure, man. Absolutely. My, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be seeing other organizations out there that are doing things like you're doing to be able to touch the people with the stories. Because a lot of times, like I was saying before, there's a lot of resources and there's a lot of veterans but it's people like you that kind of connect those in the middle to where they people have an option. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly an honor uh, and, a, and a pleasure to speak with you. And to our audience, like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. If you have any thoughts about this particular episode or would like to be, you know, like me to introduce you to Matthew, I'm happy to do that. You can do that through Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Be happy to hear what you think of Matthew's story or how you can get more involved, uh, ways that you can find help. We're happy to help you out here at the Veterans Breakfast Club. Um, otherwise, Matthew, again, I, I'd love to like reconnect in like a year, have you back on the Let's... scuttlebutt, say like, hey, where are you at? Where are you hiking? What's going on? Um, it'd be awesome. Yeah. And yeah, especially for sure. when you complete this documentary, we do screenings with BBC. We'd love to screen it if you're if you're game. That would be absolutely a huge plus. Um, I'm currently looking for uh, ideas and ways to be able to take, I've got 14,000 photos, over 700 videos sitting there <laughs> and trying to create something with that is a very big challenge for me. So I'm open to any help, any ideas on how to get, how to get that rolling. That would be great. I did want to share, um, that when I was out in Colorado, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, up in Keystone, Colorado, there was a art festival that I 
proclaimed to myself and to a few other people, but now I'm going to proclaim it on this show that I, I proclaimed to take my photography to that art show, the, the Keystone Art Festival. It's a very hard show to get into. You have to have your, your photography has to pass a board of judges. It's a very, very big, I mean, these guys are like National Geographic stuff. And when I was there, the, that, that voice inside of me, that good voice said to me, you can be here. I want you here. So I set a goal and I've already written to them and everything and said, I want to be in the show next year. What do I need to do? And I've already laid out game plan and blueprints. So hopefully next year when we talk, it'll be after I completed the, the Keystone Art Festival show. And we should have some great feedback on them about the documentary as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers for you. I hope it all yeah. works out. That Keystone Art Festival 2024. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, thank you, Matthew. And to our yeah, audience, uh, we'll see you on another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Okay, much love. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.